Hello. Welcome to the Oxford Anthropology Podcast. You're listening. You're listening to the Oxford Anthropology, Anthropology Podcast. Podcast. To the Oxford Anthropology Podcast. My name is Jacob Evans, and I am an Enfield student at the School of Anthropology and Museum Ethnography here at the University of Oxford. Today, I have the privilege of introducing the speaker for the Oxford Anthropology Podcast, Dr. Stanley Lejasic. Stanley is a nutritional anthropologist and an emeritus professor of human ecology at the University of Oxford. Stanley's work centers around the evolutionary basis for and cultural diversity in nutritional health. This includes both undernutrition and obesity and the diseases associated with them. In this seminar, we had the opportunity to listen to Stanley's Joffrey Harrison Prize Lecture from 2022, titled Nutritional Anthropology. The presentation focuses on aspects of nutritional anthropology that engage with the work of Joffrey Harrison, primarily human dietary evolution, dietary flexibility, and present-day undernutrition and infection. Stanley demonstrates the multidisciplinary nature of nutritional anthropology with diverse methods ranging from ethnography, historical and archaeological, to nutritional, epidemiological, and anatomical to confront major issues that are changing human and societal relationships with disease. Enjoy. So the focus of this talk, well, I'm going to give an overview. Um, then I'm going to talk about evolution, diet, and nutrition, and then uh, dietary and nutritional flexibility, and then offer some thoughts on present day, present day being the last 20, 30 years, I guess, um, of under and over nutrition. So the timeline is probably from two million years ago to the present day, uh, within 50 minutes or so. Yeah, we'll do what we can do. So as an overview, uh, we know in anthropology it's very important to respect the ancestors, and I feel that I'm respecting an ancestor by speaking here today. In nutritional anthropology, I think the important ancestors uh, that I would pay homage to are Audrey Richards and perhaps in a way that is less known about Margaret Mead, Margaret Mead. Why so? Well, Audrey Richards wrote this amazing tract on studies of hunger, land use and diet in then northern Rhodesia at a time when people were talking about undernutrition in the context of colonialism, um, not yet decolonized uh, northern Rhodesia, she was already looking at these ecologies of the relationships between hunger, how people were using the land, and how colonial systems were changing that, that land use already in the, in the 1930s. Seminal work, I read this uh, first of all in the 1980s, and it's a riveting read to the present day. And then Margaret Mead, um, in 1943, she published a work on food habits, dietary patterns, and nutritional health, which has been seminal for studies of diet, subsistence, and nutritional health more generally. Set, kind of set the, set the tone for the future. And then another tone-setting work of hers was in relation to uh, political economic inequalities in food availability and nutritional health. These, this discourse about political economic inequalities, nutritional health, 
is now just common parlance. It's everywhere. But she was among the first to give this uh, 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 proper, uh, proper space. So, from Richards to Mead, the field developed, diverse, diversified in its interests, became a broad church. Um, in respect of ecological relationships, studies of environment, ecology and food, are present day as past. The, the importance of food and nutrition on society Food, human evolution, and biological adaptation, this continues as a thread. Uh, and then the study of undernutrition and obesity as integrated biocultural issues. That's a fairly uh, much more recent one as dual burdens of undernutrition and overnutrition have emerged in many, many countries in the last two decades or so. And actually, most recently in relation to uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, which I'll come on to presently. And then there's, you know, Contemporary problems, food security, infant feeding, food, the body and personhood, uh, food systems, the drivers of dietary change, social, political, economic, and the idea of nutritional health, however you might want to construct that. And in that context, issues of globalization, of migration, of inequality, of insecurity, all interrelated in a complex bundle of, uh, of, of cause and effect which uh, is uh, one of the things that has also happened um, across this time. The world has gotten complex and the study of the world has embraced complexity. More and on. So what is it, nutritional anthropology? How can it be defined? Um, how can a critical thinker consider this particular field? Well, it's a branch of anthropology that considers the process and science of biological uses of food. So, stressing the biology, seeking to understand biological and cultural variability. I've struggled with this idea of cultural variability because, of course, we know it's much more, much more complex than cultural variability and counting traits and so on. Uh, Frank Johnston wrote that in 1987 and someone, uh, someone who was a, a, a colleague and mentor uh, wrote a, an encyclopedia with him uh, as well as Mike Priest and the frustration with that book took me to talk with Simon Strickland to write something we thought could be better. If something irritates you do something better. I think that's, that's probably you know I, I'd say that's a, a piece of advice I would suggest for younger people. Don't just knock something down knock it down and replace it with something. You've got nothing to replace it with. It's probably not worth knocking down yet. So, so then we defined it as a study of human diet and nutrition in comparative and evolutionary perspective. So present day comparing different groups and populations, but also looking at the time depth. How does uh, humanity cope with the challenges of getting enough food, getting the right kind of food, and being able to use that uh, to good purpose. And then finally, people's relationships with food and ecological context. And the issue with ecological context is that ecology itself is changing. And so we have to think in more diverse ways in relation to ecology. Now, you've all picked this up already, that uh, people don't actually eat nutrients. Uh, people eat food. I do not, I went to college today and I did not look at the nutritional value of what was available. I just said, I love the katsu fish. And I went for the katsu fish. Um, just come back from Japan, they said to me, this is like English fish and chips. 
katsu fish curry. So I guess so much more fried food being eaten in Japan, and I'll, I'll buy that. I had Japanese fish and chips as uh, the equivalent of for lunchtime. People eat food, not nutrients. Or do they? <laughs> well, I saw this at Heathrow Airport, a machine standing there with, you know, what the people who are truly in a hurry really do not have time to eat and do not have time to think about food, what they should be eating. Just grab some fuel and get on that plane and shove it down you. Okay. Now, of course, we know that um, fuel may give you a nutritionally complete diet of, in this case, Mexican chili. Just pull it out, rip it open, or banana shake, vanilla shake, a berry shake or a chocolate shake, and, you know, you can get your nutrition. Great if you're uh, a wired Silicon Valley kind of person who doesn't have time to move away from their machine. In fact, are so tied to their machine, they are hybrid. Uh, but what do you miss with thinking about food, uh, uh, food as fuel? Well... It takes us to the problem of nutritionism and the issue of nutritionism and the idea of fake foods and something that is all too common in the world now, ultra-processed foods. In the last 15 years, there's been quite a lot of discussion about ultra-processed foods, and we know what they are. Has anybody got any ultra-processed food, and can you show me if you have it there right now? Someone, put it in the air. Anyone? Nobody. Gosh, you're such good people. You probably really are. You're probably far better than me. No, I don't have uh, a snack bar on me. Sorry. Um, it's reducing food to nutrients. And the problems with that are that uh, you lose so much else that is associated with food. Its origins, nutritionism, I would put back to 1899 to... A, an employee, a researcher at the U.S. Department of Agriculture, um, was an alumnus of uh, Wesleyan College, who wrote about the calorie equivalence of macronutrients. What is a macronutrient, if you see it? Um, a macronutrient is carbohydrate, a macronutrient is protein, a macronutrient uh, is fat, and they, are all, can, they all contain calories. What he did was work out how many calories were in each of these? No big deal, but actually very big deal. Because he could say the four calories in a gram of protein, four calories in a gram of carbohydrate, nine calories in a gram of fat. Suddenly, you have a common currency for thinking about food, which has persisted to the present day. And it takes us to this kind of cal caloric reductionism that we can reduce everything to calories. You can say, do people get enough food? Well, they get enough calories, that must be it. They get enough food. And much of thinking about uh, global food security, for example, is in relation to calories. And actually, you know, if you get enough calories, that might not be right, because if you get all your calories from certain kinds of ultra-processed foods, you won't get the other micronutrients. You're just left with, you know, you're getting the calories, not everything else, because the nature of food since 1899 has changed so dramatically, especially recently. And the issue of ultra-processed food is a very prescient and important one. Um, on Monday, I was at a workshop um, which was in relation to Kellogg's versus the Crown, that is the British government. 
uh, they were challenging legislation that was making breakfast cereal unhealthy because that would affect their sales and it would also affect their enjoyment of property. That's part of the case. Now, in the olden days, enjoyment of property meant I have a house and nobody's going to mess with how I enjoy where I live. But in this case, they were talking about intellectual property. So intellectual property, um, the right to enjoy their intellectual property, which means the right to profit from their intellectual property. So the first round, it got, uh, it got pushed out. Um, um, and now they are challenging the, challenging the case. But the thing is that if these cases win, and then we are talking about unhealthy foods, these ultra-processed foods, it is going to change the way that we think about food and what is, what is available to, in the stores and so on. And we may hopefully look back on this era of ultra-processed foods as being an aberration. Uh, very, very important. Um, reducing everything to calories has been used to set standards for population consumption, regulating state-level food production, relating nutrition to health and disease, regulating global food security, as I've already said, but also self-regulation. Has anybody ever done any calorie counting of their own? Yeah, okay. So I see two willing victims of nutrition, three willing, four, five, six, seven, the truth is coming out, uh, eight, <laughs> nine. Uh, Okay, at least nine victims of nutritionism here. Uh, you know, you're responding to a structure that was uh, intended for uh, regulating things at a larger scale and ended up being uh, you know, something that is used for self-regulation. So Michael Pollan, whom I have met in Polenzo in Italy, um, wrote uh, a wonderful thing about nutritionism. He said it's a kind of American ideology of food in which we don't actually see foods anymore. We see nutrients. We see calories. You don't need to know what an antioxidant is to eat well. You, know, you don't need to know about the nutrition to eat well. There, you, know, you know how to eat well if you follow certain traditions of eating. And uh, uh, when we throw these things away with nutritionism, we are in, in instigating a revolution in food, which is not necessarily a good thing, not necessarily doing the things you, you want it to do. OK, the crimes of nutritionism. I've mentioned Kellogg's. And ultra-processed foods, uh, I'd call them fake foods. So vitamin donuts, each donut is fortified with a minimum of 25 units of vitamin B1. How many units of vitamin B1 did they need to destroy in making that donut is the first question. Kellogg's cornflakes is also fortified with vitamins and iron. How much nutrition did they need to destroy in order to need to fortify it? So these things that become selling points are really patch-ups for industrial processed processes. I've got a friend and colleague, Esther Gonzalez Padilla, um, who's at uh, Lund University in Sweden. She came um, to work with me here uh, last year, and she said something very interesting, which I, which I thought was, uh, which I'm happy to share with you, which she said was, um, my food, well, I get my industrial food from M&S, and I get my real food in the corner store. And however they brand it, M&S, Waitrose, Asda, Lidl, and so on, most of what they're selling is industrial food. And once you get that in your head, you think, well, actually, what kinds of processes am I supporting through consuming the kinds of foods that I consume? You might say that's a middle-class problem, but it need not be. Okay, 
Evolutionary ecological concerns in nutritional anthropology um, involve understanding evolution of human diet through a nutritional lens, as far as you can do that. Um, there are, of course, problems with trying to understand evolution of human diet when what you have is bones and stones. You really struggle to be able to turn that into nutrition. But believe me, people have done that. And also how anthropology can help understanding human eating now. Let's think about you know, how we have evolved and what is it we are able to eat and how should we be eating now. I did a podcast many years ago called What's the Natural Human Diet? It became the best-selling podcast I have ever done in my life. Uh, because people were just wanting to know, well, what should I be eating? I mean, it was an inconsequential podcast in the end, because actually it can be absolutely anything, uh, because, because of the claims that are made about foods here, right, left and centre. But people want to know, what should I be eating? Um, we can look at diet and nutrition and phenotypic flexibility, physiological, uh, morphological, across the life course in relation to nutritional health and survivorship. So using life history theory to look at uh, the, the human life course and uh, how that uh, relates to um, the way that we obtain food and use it. And then finally, understanding ecologies of present day undernutrition and obesity. So moving to the second part of the talk, welcome. Uh, I'll be very short about this because I'm sure most of you know all this material, but I'm going to focus on uh, a few um, salient points, which is how do we become a species that is able to consume an extraordinarily diverse diet? Um, doesn't happen by accident, or does it? Well, maybe to some extent it happens as a consequence of a set of structural forces that you cannot resist like climate change. And in this context, the climate change we're talking about is the climate change um, of um, uh, 1.5 million years ago to closer to the present time, you know, when uh, the rainforest um, started to become depleted as temperatures rose and we got a much more patchwork ecology across Africa. So if you think about <coughs> hominins in the African savanna, you know, in East Africa, much of where people live is in the rainforest. Now, if I were a hominin, I'd love to live in the rainforest. I'd be up in the trees picking fruit. I'd be down on the ground. I'd be, you know, that'd, that'd, that'd be paradise. <clears throat> I could work out how to, to live in, in the rainforest. Great thing about rainforests is they are stable, comparatively stable. There is, you know, once you work out your everyday life in terms of getting your food, things are comparatively stable. You can <coughs> move around and expect to find similar things in similar places. What happens when the ecosystem degrades and breaks down into semi-desert, into grassland, savanna, scrub, as well as some rainforest, is that you suddenly create new problems. You can't just be uh, a normative hominin in the rainforest. You have to become a hominin with some smarts uh, because the opportunities are there but you have to know how to find them. And you have to respond to, well, what the rainforest is. If you break down a woodland and break it down in size, its edge becomes a lot bigger. 
So just think in terms of volumes and edges. The edges get bigger. Areas may be decline, but edges become a lot bigger. So places where people can forage effectively are on the edge of one place and another. So if you're the sort of hominin that is able to find opportunities, find new niches, then you'd be in a good place. And I think, you know, part of our existence has relied on the smarts of hominins in the past to be able to do that, to be able to find new niches, to be able to find new ways of doing things, and to be able to move um, across, uh, across uh, different, uh, uh, different uh, ecosystems. The kind of evidence that I've said is sparse compared to extant species. I can't go and find myself <coughs> a Homo erectus in Whiteham Woods and go and just watch what they do. Hang out with a Homo erectus in Whiteham Woods, see what they do right now. I can't do that. Um, <coughs> attractive though that idea might be. <coughs> with bones and stones, let's say with stones, inference from anatomy, we have just a small number of things that give us clues as to what hominins ate. So these light green guys all share similar things. So Homo sapiens, Homo erectus, Homo ergaster, forget the names. Sapiens is us. Um, large brain, small teeth, obligate bipedalism. That is, walk on two legs like me. Um, the large brain, I think a large brain. I don't know if it's useful, but it's big. Um, and small teeth relative to other primate species. Distinct from everything else. This gives us clues. Large brain can be smart. Small teeth means that we're not res re relying on any particular kind of food. We become generalists, so we can consume different things. Obligate bipedalism, we walk on two legs. We can go a lot further on two legs than we could if we were clambering like, um, like uh, uh, other hominins. So that's a clue. So the breakdown of these ecosystems has resulted in more terrestriality. We need to be more on the ground than up in the trees. If those trees are, you know, don't provide enough food, then you have to find, take a risk, go down on the ground and, uh, <clears throat> and, and see what you can find. Being able to walk on two feet, having a large brain and a mid-sized body for a mammal um, is associated with a greater home range. You can go further. Increased dietary energy capture and intake High sweet and bitter taste sensitivity. I'll talk a bit more about this later, but that is um, the larger a mammal is, <clears throat> the more sensitive they are to sweetness, but bitter taste sensitivity stays the same. This is about your taste. So you reject a lot of foods that are, are, are potentially dangerous, but you can find sweetness in something like a lettuce leaf. So one of the reasons you, I assume, Many of you will like lettuce. I do. I love lettuce. Um, <clears throat> like lettuce is because there's a residual sweetness to it that you probably can't really detect, except physiologically. You're not detecting it um, in, your, in, your, uh, in, in your neocortex. You're detecting it um, in, uh, in, in other aspects of your physiology. So foraging success also in seasonal environments, being able to move around from, from, uh, from, 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 from place to place and be able to be smart in relation to what's available at a given time. More about that presently. And then dominance of the food chain. So, you know, all of these things are leading to something we have chosen to call success. So right, the story will flip. And then about a million years ago, uh, fire and cooking. 
Um, evidence for fire, well, uh, uh, South Africa about a million years ago, Israel about 800,000 years ago, Sukudian in China 770,000 years ago. From archaeological remains, uh, uh, sediments of burnt bone, ash plant remains, uh, burnt wood, flint pieces, bones with cut marks, grains, etc. All things that you can infer that, well, cooking must have gone on. Okay, I like cooking. Who likes cooking? Yay. Friends. <laughs> Friends. Okay, <clears throat> from a functional perspective, um, what I love about cooking is its improvisatory nature, which is something that my wife is more skeptical of. Uh, <clears throat> um, <clears throat> most of the time it works, but I love the improvisation. So um, that's just me. <clears throat> Maybe it's not just me. We'll find out later. Um, what, is, what does cooking do? Um, boring stuff like increased digestibility. There are lots of foods you couldn't eat if you didn't cook them. So to gelatinize the starch, when you cook it, it breaks it down, makes it digestible. Trypsin inhibitors you find in things like pulses, like beans, lentils, and so on. If you eat them raw, you can give yourself very bad stomach cramps. Um, you can, you can, you know, if you eat enough of them raw, you could kill yourself, if you wish, to live that dangerously through pulses. <clears throat> so trypsin inhibitors are... Um, Enzymes that break down proteins, that inhibit, sorry, inhibit the breakdown of digestibility of protein. So protein may be there in the food, but you can't actually digest it. Um, cooking also denatures protein, makes things digestible. So cooking is, in a sense, the outsourcing of your own physiology. It's outsourcing, chewing, grinding, swallowing, digesting. You're cutting with a knife, you're breaking things down, you're cooking them, you're already pre-digesting things before they even go into your body. Um, that is a revolution. It's safety. It reduces toxins, um, kills bacteria, kills fungi, um, all kinds, including the safe ones, but let's talk, say, with the dangerous ones. And it has sensorial effects. Improves, you know, changes the texture, taste, smell, and color of foods. And uh, that uh, all encourages uh, the eating something that becomes more attractive. Okay, moving to flexibility now. And Jeffrey Harrison, along with Igor de Garin, had some thoughts about this. Um, Igor de Garin was at CNRS, again, a, a friend and a mentor um, way back in the uh, 1980s and 1990s. Uh, they wrote uh, this great, uh, edited this great book called Coping with Uncertainty and Food Supply. And, uh, you know, they thinking very carefully about how important um, food stress, understanding food stress and mitigating it was to, uh, in the course of human evolution. Now, of course, <clears throat> the first aspect of uncertainty of food, if you take it on the grand narrative scale, uh, is a chart from a book even didn't mention, Evolving Human Nutrition, um, written by myself, Neil Mann, who's a uh, nutritional biochemist, and Sarah Elton of Durham University, who's an um, evolutionary anthropologist, um, is about modern human dispersal. Okay, we know it happened, but let's think about how it happened. You have to have some idea of what you're marching into when you start to move out of Africa. You're moving into other ecological niches in which there will be various kinds of uncertainty. One kind of uncertainty is in relation to seasonality. 
In East Africa, you may have wet season, dry season, season, seasonality. If you're on a, an increasingly drying savanna, then at least you know your season is going to be mostly dry and maybe three months of rain. And you just work out how to work with that. You move north, the seasons change. You get up to Scandinavia, and the seasons are very different. Uh, cold season, dry season, season uh, cold season, wet season, cold, hot season, seasonality become, uh, become the norm, in which times of the year when things simply don't grow, so that you know, you're reliant upon um, those, uh, what those seasons can offer, and also reliant on the technologies that you can develop that can mitigate against them. Uh, we go up to, <coughs> up to Alaska, um, migration there around 18,000 years ago from Africa you know, to, to Europe, maybe about 40,000 years ago, all the way across to Australia about 50,000 years ago, um, across the Bering Strait about 18,000 years ago, etc., uh, into the Pacific maybe about 2,000 years ago, <coughs> a very approximate numbers, I'm sorry. Um, each of these has adaptive challenges. The most important one I would posit is in relation to food getting. How do you, because you have to eat every single day. <coughs> and, uh, and, and so, you know, by the time you get to the Bering Straits, then there are technologies that associate with food getting, for example, and technologies that associate with uh, being able to, uh, to be able to withstand the cold, the cold season. So that's one aspect of, of ad ad adapting to new ecologies and the dietary flexibility that comes with that. Second one, is hunter-gatherer dietary flexibility and seasonality. Um, this is from a <coughs> book um, by Rob Foley in 1987. I slept on his floor while I got settled in Cambridge. Um, when, I, when I started there, he was finishing that book at that time that, 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 I, that I was there. I was settling into academic life in Cambridge. He was offering me clues as to how you might do this. I never understood Cambridge. Honestly, Nick, I never understood Cambridge. Um, to be honest, I don't understand Oxford either. Um, but I'm retired and uh, I got, a, a friend said to me that it's a bit like criminal law. You'll never understand it, you'll just get a feel for it. So I relied on that and that, that seems, to have, seems to have helped. Um, Hunter-gatherer flexibility and seasonality. Let's start with early seasonality, uh, uh, early wet season. When it rains, grasses grow, stems grow you can get food from things, leaves that grow. Later in the season, you get flowers and young leaves. Later on in the season, you get fruits emerging. I can go into West Oxfordshire and look at plum trees and know, probably from about six weeks from now, where I'm going to find all my wild plums. Because I just look at where the flowers are. Unless somebody gets there before me. That, that changes things. There's so many people foraging these days that it's become very, very difficult to get there on time. So you have the problem of getting there when the fruit's not quite ripe because you get the fruit but it's not ready, go a week later and it's all been stripped by somebody else. So, um, <clears throat> middle class problem. Um, beyond that, going into animals, as things dry out, opportunistic collection of fish trapped in drying pools. I saw this in Hatter Lake in Australia where Pools were drying, fish were lying on the top of the, top of the water, pelicans were having a feast with, with what was emerging on top of these pools. If you were a forager, that's where you'd get your, your fish, all concentrated in one place. Uh, opportunities for scavenging of eggs and fledglings going into the wet season again, herbivore young. Um, you know, this seasonal pattern could only be uh, capitalised on if you are have the dietary flexibility to recognize how food changes across the year. 
If you think about a zucchini, think about a zucchini now. Um, uh, what's the other word for zucchini? Courgette. Yeah. Courgette, okay. Courgette. Um, <clears throat> think about courgette. Um, it grows, it produces leaves. You can eat the leaves. It grows a bit more and it's a kind of little, little thing and it starts to produce a flower. You can eat the flower. You can eat the little zucchini, the zucchini, courgette zucchini is a better word, because if you leave the zucchini, it becomes a zucca, which is a grown-up zucchini. So, so you can, you've got really several different kinds of foods from one plant. And thinking about intelligently about a plant, you can say, well, I'm foraging here, I could decide exactly how I'm going to manage this particular food, even if seemingly you're only using a limited, um, limited uh, availability, uh, uh, a limited range of, of, of plants. So that leads me to thinking about optimal foraging theory to human subsistences. And anthropologists have related this to food choice uh, and related food choice to energy needs. And that at the base, this caloric reduction has a basis in physiology in that if you are hungry, you're hungry because you're hungry for calories. That's your physiology set up for finding and foraging calories. What you eat, how you eat, determines the quality of what you eat. So if you say, I'm going to satisfy these calories by eating lots of fruit and vegetables, then you're going to get lots of micronutrients as well because they are fellow travelers. But you don't have a specific appetite for those things. You have a specific appetite for calories. So that's how come caloric reduction became a thing because you can, you can satisfy hunger by satisfying calories. But um, I'll talk more about this when I talk about uh, obesity. Um, there are caveats to that. So day-to-day -day survivorship requires energy. Um, energy capture has to reflect this and balance across the day or longer periods, sometimes not even a day, uh, sometimes across a week, across the seasons, across the years. It doesn't necessarily balance on the, across the day. The problem with nutritionism is that with, with uh, taking nutrient requirements, it says you have to get so many calories every day. Humans don't do that. You know, there are times when you eat very little, times when you eat an awful lot. Um, we're going into Lent. Um, um, there are people who are deciding to, to, to change what they're eating across Lent and change, uh, change their, their dietary practices, reduce their food intake and so on. And, you know, their intake will balance across the year, not necessarily across the season. So in terms of foraging and optimal foraging, the best choices are usually the foods with greatest energy return and the lowest food getting costs. If I take my hominin out of Whiteham Woods and put my hominin into Sainsbury's in town, give them a trolley, explain what a trolley is, and off they go. My God, they will have an amazing time because they could forage a week's worth of food in an hour. That is progress, no? That is progress, and that's what we're doing all the time. You know, we are still foraging for foods with greatest energy turn and lowest food getting costs, except now, you know, it's not plums in Whiteham Woods, it's pizza. So evolution success by successful um, optimal foraging through adaptive physiology behavior um, means that you know we can be where we are because we've been able to uh, successfully uh, negotiate our food environments uh, to be able to maximize uh, our food returns and that becomes a burden now. Moving now to uh, Papua New Guinea where I got involved in optimal foraging uh, where I worked in 1970, between 1979 and 81, between 19, 1983 and 84. Jeffrey um, uh, Harrison carried out human adaptability research in Papua New Guinea, Kakar Island. 
And another link with the Harrisons. He met his wife in Papua New Guinea. Elizabeth, no? Yeah. Yeah. And I met my wife in Papua New Guinea. So um, <clears throat> this is the Purari Delta. Sorry for that personal note. <laughs> um, I got intrigued by this very peculiar uh, staple food, which is palm sago. It's a palm tree. It grows. You cut it down, and then you use various technologies to cut out the starch from the middle, wash it with water. You get a big block of starch, and that's food. Uh, but it, it's totally calories. So thinking about this caloric reduction, it's a good place to think about uh, those sets of, sets of relationships. Low nutrient content um, and uh, uh, beyond, uh, beyond energy. And yet, it seems to be a successful ecosystem. What people were saying at that time, and I was a public health nutritionist at that time, was that it's the staple that is causing all the undernutrition that we find in this place. And, you know, me being a natural skeptic said, hmm, not so sure. What's the evidence? Well, just look, that's what they eat and this is what happens. Actually, there's many steps in between, as we know. So let's take a think about this. This is a slide from the Perari Delta, uh, where, where, where I worked. This is a sago palm, uh, one that's growing, um, already grown for maybe five or six years, a smaller one there. And then there's a betel nut tree. Down here, there's lots of things growing as well. What people were doing is kind of through planting uh, sago palms, they were uh, mimicking the rainforest. And the way that people used this locality, using dugout canoes like this, spent a lot of time in a dugout canoe, there's a sago-based energetics economy, um, one that was intensifying as population was increasing. Uh, this is from work on uh, varieties of uh, palm sago use. I looked at local names that were being used. That were, that were given to sagos that were being used, um, they were propagated and wild, um, and there were uh, some that were just propagated. Um, the Nutrition Survey Expedition of 1947 had been in the village I was in in 1947, that's why I chose it, Koravaki Village, and there was a lot of data about sago pre-1947, so I just went back and asked people stuff, and said, well, you know, uh, take me to your sago, sago gardens. We went there, we measured, I measured stuff up, and measured uh, planting densities and how many different cultivars types of sago were being planted pre-1947. 12 types were planted. Uh, Post-1947, you know, six to four. By the time I was there, within two years that I was there, they were down to three varieties. So it was already intensification of palm sago happening um, across the, the 20th century. This intensification um, was the key to actually very balanced ecology. This is the Priory Delta. Um, somebody on one of those canoes has got to know the delta like a London taxi driver knows London. Um, they've got to be able to move around all of these. I had a map. I would ask people to show where their Sago Gardens are, and they'd point to them on the map and said, okay, now take me there. Um, mostly, they wouldn't be far out. They would know the delta that well, and they could map onto you know, an, you know, the equivalent of an ordnance survey map on the, on the side of my house. So wandering around this delta, you might go up here to cut sago. My mistake was once, you know, they said, do you want to come making sago with us? Okay, um, I said yes. Um, I took my notebook and a pen. I didn't even take a toothbrush. That's a mistake um, because we, 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 came, we came back late the next day, no toothbrush, but we got there, said, well, you know, we're gonna sleep. I cut down a few fronds, put together shelters and put some leaves on the ground, that's where we're sleeping. Yeah, fine, works, it works. Um, 
So they might go up here to cut sago, and then on the way back to Korobaki village, they might stop at one of these other sago gardens and see what's growing there. That is, like going to the corner store, seeing what's available on the way back home. So in a sense like this. So <clears throat> go to the sago place and stop at a bush garden on the way before they came back. Um, <clears throat> on the days when they weren't making sago, two days of making sago was enough energy for the rest of the week. They could go and collect crabs, they could go fishing, again, going back to the bush gardens, wherever, you know, wherever, wherever they went. So it's a kind of um, gathering, hunting, fishing, and horticulture as a, as, a, as, as a complex. And of course, they go back to where they cut sago. There was starch refuse there. It would attract these guys. And off they would go hunting pigs, stay there at night and wait until something came to, uh, came to uh, sneak, uh, sneak some food from the cut down sago tree. And uh, that's what they do. They go, they, 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 you know, they get a pig, that would be great. Oftentimes they didn't. Um, sago grubs, which are insects that grow inside the starch of the, of the sago tree, um, come back two weeks later and just cut down this meter or so of palm. Is that me? Okay. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Not right now. <laughs> um, uh, okay, and these things are okay, full of protein, um, full of starch, and uh, you know they can get pull out kilos of these from one particular sago tree. Um, getting crabs, getting shellfish, all of these things contribute to the ecology. So of course, you know, like any self-respecting stats-related person, I had to do a multiple regression. I uh, couldn't couldn't resist. Um, but the multiple regression confirmed what I already knew from what I saw, uh, which was that number of days spent working sago meant that people had more time to go fishing, um, and uh, uh, the more time they spent in, in, in making sago, it also increased the amount of protein that was available because they were doing these other things like fishing and crabbing. So subsistence and dietary nutritional diversity are enabled but also limited by environment, as I've said. Um, they're enabled by cooking, limited by not cooking. Um, toxicity is reduced by cooking. But there's one other aspect, which is the microbiome, uh, which takes us closer to the present day. And work that has been largely carried out by Italian colleagues uh, in, in connection with uh, colleagues in the United States. Um, the microbiome, the gut microbiome, contributes to dietary flexibility. But how does it do it? Well, first of all, looking at the uh, microbiome diversity and then doing what is called a principal components analysis shows something quite clearly that Italians and Americans have a different microbiome to people to the Hadza, people in Burkina Faso, and people in Malawi. Different microbiome. They're just taking the whole complexity of the microbiome, they stratify differently. Very different microbiome. What does that mean? Um, basically, if we take our Americans and, and Italians and look at aspects of the microbiome, basically look at the pale blue guys. These are bacteria which are largely harmful or negative or scavenge more energy uh, from food than, uh, than, than other bacteria. Uh, the, uh, these bacteria are, uh, promote health. Um, they increase the digestibility of things like uh, dietary fiber. So we're told that dietary fiber we can't digest, but actually, you know, if you're in Malawi, or in Burkina Faso, living on a very traditional diet, 
then actually you are digesting dietary and getting dietary energy from your dietary fiber. Um, <coughs> negatives, fecobacterium, bacterioides are all big negatives in terms of metabolic health and chronic disease. So the microbiome is already, you know, contributing to, um, to that flexibility. Now, the microbiome is altered by what you consume. The gene expression, it's not just the bacteria, but it's the gene expression of the bacteria. It's, it varies um, according to what you consume. So um, apologies for this. This is a nod to my first degree, which was in biochemistry, which is still useful. Um, if only to bamboozle everybody else in the audience, sorry. Um, but <clears throat> protein versus carbohydrate, this particular pathway is the pathway towards degradation of protein. This pathway down here is the pathway towards, uh, towards protein synthesis. If you have a diet that is low in protein, you switch on the genes for producing these enzymes towards uh, towards uh, producing protein. If you have a diet that is um, uh, rich in protein, then you'll break down that protein and turn it into uh, the precursors of uh, metabolic energy that you use in your body. What is the importance of this? That this is, these are genes in the bacteria themselves, not genes in humans. So this is a more than human metabolism. We have uh, to think about metabolism beyond the individual. We have to think of the of human metabolism in relation to the microbiome. Um, so the human microbiome, the more than human metabolism, leads to dietary flexibility. It can rapidly switch between herbivorous and carnivorous functional profiles. This could reflect past selective pressures during human evolution. Um, animal foods would have been volatile, variable, depending on season and stochastic processes. And so having microbial communities that can quickly and appropriately shift their functional repertoire in response to dietary change, not just change their composition, but actually switch on genes, would have enhanced human dietary flexibility. So the other level of dietary flexibility is not just what comes in here, but it's what's happening in your gut. So more than, more than human metabolism. More than human metabolism... Um, is ancient because I'm, I was pretty sure somebody would say, what about fermentation? So what about fermentation? Uh, this is my copy of the Noma Guide to Fermentation. Fantastic book. Really, really, really like uh, food hacking in a really good way. Um, more, than ancient, more than human metabolism is, is, is ancient. Mushrooms, going back to 4,000 years ago. Fermentations, 10,000 years ago with, with fermented milk, cheese, bread and something that we'll all enjoy at some stage, perhaps uh, beer and wine, um, all fermentations. And this is all in relation to more than, more than human metabolism. Okay, I'm going to take the last few minutes to talk about present-day undernutrition, overnutrition. Um, this was my desk um, just a few days ago at home. <coughs> thought, okay, Jeffrey Harrison was also sort of written about human adaptation. Um, he co-edited a book called Diet and Disease uh, with John Waterlow. John Waterlow was a nutrition mentor of mine um, uh, back in the day. And I had a chapter in that book called Nutrition Status of Susceptibility to Infectious Disease, published in 1990. So again, showing the, the, the links between the two. If we think about undernutrition, 
Um, the literature is driven by the energy deficit paradigm. And that is, you know, if you don't get enough food, you, you, know, you don't have enough dietary energy, and there are strong homeostatic mechanisms to defend body weight if you try and lose weight. Anybody here try to go on a weight loss diet? I'll be honest. Who had problems? Yeah, okay, yeah. Within two days, your metabolism's responding to it and saying, look, I wanna keep what I've got. And, and so it's a struggle to lose weight. Very strong homeostatic mechanisms to, uh, to, uh, to maintain um, existing, existing body weight. Add to that infection, nutrition infection processes. There are so many ways in which this can happen. Um, we can invoke life history theory to look at infection in relation across the life, life course, different kinds of uh, disease categories or patterns, endemic, seasonal, epidemic, I put COVID-19 in there, emergent and interactions between them. All of them have implications for nutrition and nutritionism. Um, all of them have implications for how one uh, considers food across the, the life course in relation to infection. And also to I put societal processes, acceptance of disease, um, local understandings. If something's endemic, that is there all the time, it's common. And therefore you make it common, it's just something that's there. Um, if something's seasonal, then you have structures for buffering against seasonality and mitigating the worst effects. Epidemic, then you have meanings of management of an upsurge of disease, the meaning of COVID-19. You can remember, I'm sure, a lot of the, the discussion and discourse around you know, what, what, what is going on and the potential for stigmatization. Um, emergent diseases, meaning of new diseases, public health and biomedicine, lockdowns, national food security, blah, blah, blah. Um, all of that. So, so many different ways in which nutrition and infection um, operate together. <clears throat> I want to take you to some recent work I've carried out with biological anthropologist Cristina Giuliani at the University of Bologna. Anybody who knows me well knows I follow the food and the best place to go to follow food is to go to Bologna. Um, apart from having amazing food, it has amazing scientists um, who think very creatively, strangely, wonderfully, um, and often over food. So Christina and I meet um, in a part of a restaurant called The Office. So we spend time in the office talking about um, uh, physiological taste as ecological sensing. So sweet and bitter taste, forget all the other things about taste, just sweet and bitter, because we don't actually know very much about the physiology of taste, um, are fundamental for sensing food safety and food and infection. So what is physiological taste? I'm saying physiological taste because there are many different ways of constructing the idea of taste, so I'm staying very precise. It's part of a major sensory system, smell, taste, texture, pain, temperature. I think you eat chili peppers, you get pain. Hot chili, pep chili peppers in something hot gives you a certain kind of sensation which then modulates how you taste the sweetness or the savouriness of, of a particular food. Try eating a cold curry versus a hot curry. Well, I mean, just in temperature, and you see how different they taste. You know, it's simply because temperature is already modulating those, those relationships. It's part of an integrated sensorial system. It directs attention to pleasure, displeasure, toxicity, digestibility. And I'd say its evolution significance is survival. I mean, put something in your mouth, are you sure you want to eat it? If you taste some, you know, you, I'm sure at least one of you will have experienced eating something mouldy or putting something mouldy into your mouth. I'm very happy to share all the slides with anybody who wants them. Uh, put something into your mouth and it has just a fraction of mould on it, you can taste it and you spit it out and say, I can't eat this. Or you make a decision. Actually, it's camembert. I like the mould. Up to you. Um, so you can, 
you know, make your decision, but you already detect that particular, that particular sensation. Now, bitter taste perception is a key mechanism for protecting against potential toxins as they come into your mouth. Bitter taste receptors, you can reduce them down to TAS 2R receptors. That's a molecular basis. Quite simple, it's like Lego blocks. Basically, you take, you know, t the different TAS receptors, like there are like four different block, Duplo blocks, and you put them together in different ways, and it gives you the taste for umami, the taste for sweet, taste for bitter, you know, perception of those things. So they, you know, that's a, it's a very parsimonious biological system. Um, bitter taste receptors of different primate species are many and various. Humans, we have 25 different types of bitter taste receptors. But here's the thing, we've only got one sweet taste receptor variety, only one. Sweet is a lot easier than bitter. So most of the sweetness that happens in nature is sucrose and fructose. And that is that particular variant, one taste receptor. There are more, uh, but that's the, that's, the, that's, the, uh, that's the dominant one. 25 TAS2 variants for bitterness. So compounds like potassium chlorate, like saccharin, like the bitter taste of onions and capers, the bitter taste in grapefruit, bitter taste in cocoa bees and coffee, red wine, beer, all of these things are responded to by different kinds of taste receptors. It means that as we have developed dietary flexibility, so we have developed um, or evolved different taste receptors in response to things that are potentially harmful. So we have a suite of different ways of scanning the bitterness horizon. Of course, we can overwhelm this by just saying, culturally, I know coffee tastes bitter, but actually I like bitterness. So I'll teach myself to like bitterness. And then you like it for a range of aesthetic reasons. I'm not going to talk about that, but I'm happy to talk about it in questions. But that's, that's certainly true, and we can train that. Now, um, the weird thing about sweet and bitter taste receptors is that you don't just find them in the mouth in the oral cavity or the nose and sinuses. You find them in the brain. You find them in the small intestine, in the colon. You find them in the testes. I can't taste sweetness or bitterness in my testes, but the receptors are there. And those compounds are clearly there. And the same goes for different organs of the body. You cannot taste sweetness in your small intestine, even though um, the small intestine has sweet taste receptors and bitter taste receptors. So what's going on? Well, what is going on is actually a misnaming of sweet and bitter taste receptors, which are actually more about regulating immunity than they are about taste. We just so happen to have identified taste receptors, and we know we link them to a phenotype, which is taste sweet, sweet taste receptor, taste bitter, bitter taste receptor. And we say, well, that's the linkage. But we haven't you know, looked so far until the last two decades, that actually these receptors are found all over the body and doing different kinds of things. I could dig deeper into the physiology if you want, but I won't, um, because it's part of a bigger suite of uh, G-coupled prote protein receptors, which are uh, universal in sensing every part of our uh, environment. They are, you know, they are the things that mediate the sensorial universe physiologically. So what's going on? Basically, this is... Uh, uh, this, is, this, is, this is in the nose, by the way, in this particular paper. Um, uh, infected bacteria come along, they produce, they consume sugar, and they produce bitter microbial products. The bitter taste receptors perceive that. They also, the sweet taste receptors detect a decline in sugar in the tissues of the nose. 
Um, and then through release of calcium, um, they produce antimicrobial proteins which then smash the, smash the bacteria. So it's a, it's a, this is the model for, for all of these systems. Of course, we need to be developed in different parts of the body, but it's you know, fundamentally uh, a, a system for um, a sentinel response against infection. Um, and then this kind of response also then amplifies the rest of the immune system. So we're already tracking the immune system. Um, well, Christina doesn't stop there. Uh, Christina goes on and she starts to do a, a network analysis of taste receptors with, uh, and taste receptor genes in relation to a whole range of uh, diseases and disorders. And what we find is that these TAS2 receptors, bitter taste receptors, sweet taste receptors are linked to many different diseases and they are linked to each other in a network of associations. They're all working together as a, a, a suite of mechanisms for, uh, for responding to uh, responding to different kinds of diseases. Going one step further, we published this, Physiological Taste as Ecological Sensing. It's an integrated view of a complex system to talk you through it, basically. Um, <clears throat> you eat something um, and you respond to it by chewing it, eating it in the mouth, respiratory tract, um, in the gut and so on. Um, there are environmental stimuli which, uh, which uh, are, are um, one kind of ecological sensor, taste is another ecological sensor, and this results in, in behaviours. We say, this tastes nice, so I'll eat more of it, and that's fine, that's all good. But you know what, sometimes the response is towards inflammation, and particularly in relation to ultra-processed foods, the consumption of these, they taste good, they're fooling us. Aha. Uh -huh. They're fooling us. We want to eat more of these, they taste really good, and then we, our behavior is to eat more of them. It creates a level of inflammation that's inflammatory stress that is associated with uh, the complications of obesity, with type 2 diabetes, with cancers, with neuropathies, a whole range of things. So underpinning all of this is uh, what this system is doing to, uh, uh, to, to generate inflammation, which is the underpinning of uh, of uh, many chronic diseases. Okay, uh, just a trigger warning. Um, some people will have a strong reaction to the next slide. Okay, don't look now. <laughs> <laughs> Moving to COVID-19. Um, this individual, former Prime Minister Johnson, uh, had uh, 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 much higher weight than when he went to be, uh, went to be vaccinated against COVID-19. The um, thing about COVID-19 was it's the infectious disease that's linked with extreme body fatness. So usually the narrative was about undernutrition and infection, but here we have an infection that's associated with overweight and obesity. Very different, very new, completely new. And I'll explain a little bit about how, how that works. Um, so, um, in the context of Boris Johnson suddenly deciding obesity was important, in the middle of the pandemic, he suddenly said, we have to put it back on the national food strategy. And suddenly, we're all saying, how, how, what, how? How do we do this in, in two months? So then they said, well, we'll have a part A and a part B. Part A then dealt with COVID-19 and, and obesity, and part B was really what the national food strategy was meant to be about, which was a, a post-Brexit food strategy. So. Um, how does it go? 
And what's this importance in relation to taste? Well, you know, one of the early symptoms of COVID-19 was, was a loss of taste. It's not trivial. Um, it's not trivial because SARS, um, this is that beautiful kind of knitted, you know, model virus with bobbly things on that looks very attractive. You might want to put it on your head. Um, <clears throat> um, in fact, <clears throat> um, epithelial cells, neural, neural cells, but also affects taste receptor cells. Um, <clears throat> in the course of, <clears throat> of uh, infection through ACE2 receptors, it creates so, something called a cytokine storm. Basically, your immune system goes crazy, killing everything. So it'd be like having a, you know, a, a killer in the classroom right now, killing everything. That's the cytokine storm equivalent. Um, <clears throat> it damages neural cells, the olfactory bulb, the thalamus, taste receptor cells, olfactory receptor cells, as well as all the other stuff that's happening in the lungs. So the early thought was that, is COVID-19 actually destroying more than we think, including neural damage? And this might just be a signal for things that are happening in terms of long COVID and its effect on, on uh, neurological function. <clears throat> Omicron didn't do the same because it didn't have quite such a severe inflammatory response in relation to, uh, in relation to, uh, in relation to infection. So um, that link is Boris Johnson takes us to energy surplus and takes us to, to obesity. On the other side, energy surplus, there are poor homeostatic mechanisms for taking it down again. Put on weight um, and it's difficult to take it off again. Um, there are different contexts in which this happens, but it's a kind of fundamental system of weight regulation, um, in this case in ecological context. Here's a cascade that suggests how this, this might work. We start um, at the bottom here with ultra-processed foods, exposure to ultra-processed foods, all that junk food there in front of you. You have a preference for that. Eat enough of them, you want to eat them. Actually, people who try to come off ultra-processed foods find it really difficult because there's a kind of addictive property to them. It takes, you know, maybe two weeks to say, well, actually, other food's okay because your taste senses are ramped up you're used to a high level of sweetness. You're used to not even detecting, you know, the subtlety of taste in, in, in other foods, as well as, as, well as an expectation um, of certain kinds of physiological satisfactions being met by eating them, which are neurological. So eating these things, you can very easily overeat, increase body weight, and then, you know, you can restore your weight to a higher energy balance. Actually, most people um, who put on weight are in stasis with their body weight. They're not actually putting it on or putting it off. When people put on weight, it's usually episodic. And then they come to stasis at a higher level, and it's episodic again. Try and take it down. You don't have episodes of hunger like we would have had. Um, you, know, you know, my hominin in Wyson Woods would experience seasonal hunger, and therefore that would ramp it down. It wouldn't be pleasant, but, you know, you'd have the energy stores for times of, times of, uh, uh, times of shortage. How do you control eating? Well, the eating environment. How do you choose to eat? What are the structures? What structures? How you eat? Who do you eat with? Then there's emotional eating, you know. My boyfriend dumped me, so I'll just go to the McVitie's Biscuits, for example. You know, who knows? Is it better than doing cocaine? I don't know. But it still has the same kind of, same kind of uh, effect, and it's using the same neural mechanism, the same neural pathway, as, as other ad addictive, uh, addictive behaviours. So you have a, a range of things that are going on which are not straightforwardly uh, physiological. Uh, they're also in relation to, to sociality. And it's complex. 
Okay. I would love somebody to knit this for me. <clears throat> There's got to be a knitting pattern. Probably use AI to find the knitting pattern. Um, <clears throat> at the middle, you have the poor person with energy balance problems. That is maintaining their body weight. Um, this is the complexity of obesity production, which uh, came out of a, a think tank in 2007, Foresight Obesities, uh, which is a representation of complexity. That's 2017, from ecology to complexity, models of obesity. Uh, and this is a model of obesity. But what it says is over 100 factors that are associated with obesity. There's no point in trying to look for more factors associated with obesity. They're actually it doesn't help because no single factor is associated with obesity. So let's just separate one thing as well. Obesity is a clinical term for excess body fatness. And actually that term is contested in the middle range of, 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 of body fatness. I've got a body mass index that's tipped over 26 today. I know, 88 kilograms. It tipped over last night while I wasn't watching. So now I'm in the overweight category. <clears throat> and, but I don't care because I know it doesn't matter. In terms of my health status, it doesn't matter. I'm 68, and what's life going to do to me? I don't know. I mean, you know, it's my body mass index isn't going to do it to me. So that mid-range between body mass index of 25 and 35 or something doesn't really matter, except aesthetically, except in moral judgment, except in creating norms around which, which you might apply on people who are non-compliant to your norms. Um, so... On the one hand in this diagram, you've got uh, food and how you're, you're confronted with food and your dietary habits. On the other hand, you have physical activity and how you structure your own physical activity. Then you have psychological factors, ambivalence, and then you have the biological factors. And in the far distance, this was the corner, the cluster that, <clears throat> that I was involved in, in developing this map, which is societal factors associated with the development of excess, excess body, uh, body fatness. Now, okay, it's, you know, societal factors are everywhere. We know that. Um, but you know, they have to be ordered in some way, which means to say it's a model. It's not right. It's a way of thinking about something. At the extreme, you have the food system. At the extreme, you have urban planning and how people can structure their physical activity uh, in relation to, 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 to body weight. So, and at the bottom, you have your biology, genetics, whether you're breastfed, all of these factors. So it's a, a model of, of complexity. So obesity, unlike the previous slide, this one, it's not simply up and down. It's so many things that are related. It gets ever more, more, more complex as the factors become uh, more difficult to understand. But it also means, in terms of trying to do something at the population level, if you push in one place, somewhere else will push out. So it's an understanding among policymakers in the early 2000s that actually we need to be thinking about pathways and we need to be thinking about relationality among different um, uh, policy structures towards, uh, towards uh, uh, the regulation of obesity. It became a policy object in the 1990s in the UK because it was costing a lot. Straightforwardly, um, 10 years ago, obesity was costing something like 20 billion a year just in terms of treatment, another 20 billion a year in terms of uh, uh, lost economic production, shall we say. So it became a policy object because it was expensive. Yeah. Uh, primarily, I'm cartooning everything, but you know, that's it. So what's happened since then is that apart from the medics and, uh, uh, and public health people, physiology, genetics, epigenetics, epidemiology, 
whole range of raft of other disciplines are, are now into uh, weighed into the um, into the obesity uh, discourse um, with different cultural framings. So economics, psychology, uh, political science, sociology, anthropology, geography, history all have a take. <coughs> these uh, these are all um, different ways of focusing um, uh, efforts on on obesity. Of course. The issue is not one of these approaches is right. You know, they are all wrong in that they're all missing something. So the reality is that, you know, these different disciplines need to try to speak to each other. Also, within a discipline, you might find that researchers think they're talking about the same thing, but they're not. I spent a decade in the School of Anthropology trying to persuade Marcus Banks, that we need AI to start to um, analyze our narratives and analyze our texts. I know a colleague who's done that with Dante. I know Jane Austen has been in narratives, discourse analysis, AI-driven dis AI discourse analysis of Jane Austen has been done. We're resistant somehow. I should talk with Giorgio Orsi, who a, was a, uh, a computational linguist here in, in Oxford, about how to do this. And the story is that basically the way that most people construct their um, field note narratives are difficult to turn into narratives that AI can deal with. But that was like five years ago. But anyway, so I went to Copenhagen. And, and as anybody who knows me, I'm driven by the food as well as by the science. And the food in Copenhagen is very good indeed. And uh, as are my colleagues. So, uh, Torben Jensen um, at Arborg University um, and, uh, um, and uh, uh, Astrid Chris uh, Jespersen and uh, Lena Hansen have all published, uh, worked together in what was called a techno-anthropology grouping um, that was um, looking at different problems. And so we had a... a uh, uh, a workshop in which we basically worked this across the course of a week. So we uh, first of all had uh, machine read 414 articles in the English language, found key terms, tagged those key terms, and then did network diagrams. And every day it get, you know, got better and better because we were there trying to say, well, what does this mean? What aspects of this don't work? So these are kind of you know, semantic networks, if you will. So they were reduced down to uh, food environment, institutional environment, which is about food, family environment, which is actually only about food, built environment, bodily food, which is mostly about uh, medicine, and suggested that when people were talking about obesity and environment, they were actually five different fields. So even in a field that considers itself to be unified, it's not unified, which would you know, take an STS approach to this, you're saying, well, actually, the science is in the course of being made and unmade, of course. Of course, but you know, acknowledging that is actually helpful because you can say, well, what do I need to do to be able to get to what I want to know? And of course, this has policy implications because you're dealing with the food environment, ultra-processed food, you're dealing with institutional environments, it's usually about schools, families, it's usually in relation to childhood obesity and how that's produced. And uh, you know, they have different policy objects. Um, <clears throat> well, one thing that we've been trying to do for close to 16 years, is to bring some of these voices together. The unheard voices are, are, are everyday people, but also, also sciences, scientists finding connections and listening to unheard voices, um, bringing social science into bioscience, especially, 
and actually many bioscientists are very sensible and uh, very responsive because they just don't know how to talk about stuff. Um, so, you know, offering the terminology that can help to understand a phenomenon uh, beyond the simple um, social science terms like socioeconomic status is very, very helpful. But you can say, well, actually, there's an awful lot of theory out there that you can use. Um, finally, I say, walking into the forest of complexity, I've just, that's close to the title that I'm doing a... a um, a, uh, an editorial for, for, for Science magazine, and I'm trying to work out how to make this work. So yesterday I felt quite romantic in thinking, so I felt about walking into the forest of complexity, so that's why it's here. And also in relation to, in relation to policy. Now, back to nutritional anthropology. Um, it's become, I'd say, nutritional anthropologies. Um, the other things that we've talked about, that, that we've, we've done, have been digital food activism, um, uh, uh, disordered eating, colonialism of food, also food systems, public health, nutrition interventions, um, the anthropology of policy, um, the anthropology of complexity, food securities and food insecurity. So it's kind of morphed into, into yet more different things. And so difficult to say what the thing is in terms of nutritional anthropology, except that it's all over the place, and I'm happy for that. And finally, for Elizabeth, that's Karkar Island. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Oxford Anthropology Podcast. For more episodes, visit podcast.ox.ac.uk slash anthropology or find us on Apple Podcast Audio.